Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. April Snowcast was born into Scientology in 1982 and was in the Sea Organization, the name for Scientology's clergy, briefly as a teenager, at which time her parents gave up custody to the church. During that time of her life, she started seeing red flags within the organization, but it wasn't until her mid-20s that she finally stepped away for good, and only recently, in 2017, was she officially declared Scientology's version of excommunication, in which friends and family tend to shun and completely cut contact with the individual. Although she's never been shown this actual documentation of her being excommunicated, one of her crimes, in quotes, no doubt is providing a space for others questioning Scientology to speak about their concerns and traumas aloud and find help by speaking to others. What began as one-on-one coffee dates and phone conversations led to an eventual organizing of support groups and group therapy sessions, a practice which Scientologists are forbidden to do. April feels strongly that discouraging psychotherapy and demonizing psychiatric medications is harmful, and it's also abusive behavior that results sometimes in suicide within the community. And that ignoring disorders such as bipolar disorder and schizophrenia, it's causing parishioners who are suffering to go undiagnosed and untreated. Up until this point, she's kept the conversation relatively private. But having lost a great number of friends and acquaintances to suicide and having a family member suffering in silence, she has begun to feel an obligation to speak out. I was honored to be able to speak with her, and I'm very excited that you're going to be able to hear part one today of a two-part episode with April. Here she is. everyone to the podcast and especially I want to welcome my guest today April Cast. She is a wonderful wonderful person and I hope you get to know her better today and I have her here on video as well as audio so it's really nice to see you. Good to see your face too. <laughs> yeah. It's been, a bit. Uh, it's been a while. It's been a while but um, I'm so glad that you were wanting to to talk with me today and talk with whoever is listening to this show. But um, can you tell us a little bit about you when you're, you know, what do you do when you're not talking to me on video? Oh, my day-to-day life is pretty mm-hmm. um, way more exciting than I sell real estate in Los Angeles. So uh-huh. <laughs> it's very intense generally running around and um, yeah, I sell houses and I sing. I'm a singer and hmm. I'm married and have a bunny. I don't know what you want. <laughs> wow. And you have a bunny. And what's your bunny's name? Just Jax. Jaxie. He's nice. here. So I'm, I'm home right now. So he's he has his own little bedroom here. <laughs> I always want pets to feel represented. So I'm so curious to have people hear about your story, but in particular, what you were thinking about why you wanted to talk to me now, right? Because there's sometimes it's kind of a a timing issue that is part of the story. Well, honestly, I'm still I'm still in the timing where I don't really want to talk to you. (laughs) Oh, 
Um, I, I've been, I think that, well, so I come from a Scientology background and I know you talk to people from all different types of, of backgrounds. And I, um, and you and I met when I reached out to you because I was trying to put together um, a uh, group therapy session for people who were leaving Scientology. And this was before I got declared, which is the Scientology's version of excommunication. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so I was still sort of under the radar, had friends and family that were able to talk to me, you know, without getting uh, harassed themselves. Right. <laughs> um and I put that together with you. It was very healing. And we had a small group. It's really hard to get a large group of Scientologists or especially people who aren't out yeah, publicly. Yeah, um, right, to talk. Right, right. So, um, and we, we had our first session at your office um, mm-hmm. and I had held some, uh, some events here at my, my home. And um, then you did another session uh, for us at a later date and time at one, at another friend's home. And yeah. Um, you know, I found it very therapeutic and I know that other people, <laughs> when therapy is therapeutic, how, what, <laughs> how bizarre, <laughs> but, um, you know, it's really hard for a Scientologist to reach out to a therapist. Um, I had already been in um, therapy to some degree, not talking necessarily about this, but about my life, about my marriage, this, had, the Scientology had come up and I found it was really hard to discuss it with the therapist I had because she didn't um, know anything about Scientology. So I spent hours just trying to explain words and, uh-huh. and just, and beliefs, you know, ideologies. And um, yeah, anyway, I mostly didn't talk to her about that part of my life. I would bring it up if it made sense for what I was going through in my current, you know, daily, whatever was going on, especially particularly in my marriage and relationship with my family, you know, which I think most people go to therapy for those things. Yes. yes yeah. That's pretty common, uh, uh, theme kind of, topic. um, I'm, I wonder also if you can explain because, you know, I, you know, and I know from hearing that it's hard for people thinking about leaving Scientology and people who have left Scientology to pursue therapy. Can you give a brief synopsis about why that is. And honestly, that's the biggest reason why I wanted to talk to you today and why I wanted to um, kind of speak up on your podcast, even though there's still a lot of fear in me about how it's going to affect people who are somewhat in my lives or could come back in my life or this like crazy idea when we're excommunicated, like, is this a nail in the coffin of a relationship, you know? But honestly, it's the lack of mental health care and Scientology and the fear of therapy and the fear of medication and all of this, which I'm sure we'll, we'll touch more on as we get to talking, um, it's ingrained in us from birth. And so walking into a therapist's office, mm-hmm. I've seen, I've gone through my own stuff, but I've also, because I've held group therapy, I've borne witness to other people have uh, in their anxiety and their fear and, and seeing that real fear that's instilled in us, even when we're excommunicated already even or even if we're so far removed and we we know that there's nothing to be afraid of in in you know analytically we know that there's nothing to be afraid of but there's still a fear of psychiatry in particular and psychology and um and psychotherapy and it's because from children i mean if you if if 
I mean, you're in Los Angeles. You've probably driven by the Industry of Death Museum. Yes, it's um, it's quite intense and quite disturbing. It's really, yeah. it's and really, I mean, it's so disturbing. Also, because of how how much it deals with fear mongering and also keeping people from getting the help that they really need sometimes when they really need it. Absolutely, and that's something that wasn't that just didn't really occur to me. Um, until I started witnessing it as an adult in friends and family that were untreated and um, untreated for depression, untreated for schizophrenia, which is probably, to me, it's just, it's abusive. It's abusive to tell somebody that something that could help you is harmful to you and to frighten them away from ever looking at that as an option. The therapy that I have had, which hasn't been super extensive, but over the last nine to 10 years, I've had therapy, you know, in in different junctures in my life for different things that were happening in my life. And it's been a very positive experience. Um, And, but if you had gone into the head of 18 or 25 year old April, she would have told you like, don't don't because they just want to give you drugs and like the things that I was told, (laughs) which the truth is in my case, I'm not seriously mentally ill. I don't need medications or I've never been prescribed medications. No one's ever. And no one told me like, not every therapist can't just prescribe you medication. If they're not a doctor, if they're not also a psychiatrist, they can't just prescribe you medication. They're going to refer you, you know? Right. Uh, and none of my therapists have ever even brought it up as an option, which is like very contrary to what I was led to believe. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and that is so true. You don't find out until you experience it yourself or you have kind of the, hmm, you take the risk to ask someone else about it uh, and, and deal with your... are going to take that risk. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. I think it's also good just to add this addendum here where if people want to understand sometimes why things are so demonized within um, controlling groups, usually the thing that's demonized is the thing that threatens the leader the most. For sure. (laughs) Your Dianetics, the modern science of mental health. I mean, that's what he called his, his first book. Mm-hmm. was the modern science of mental health. And if you dig into Dianetics, if you get to understand Dianetics, you see a lot of similarities between Dianetics and cognitive behavioral therapy. A lot of it is like we act and react the way we act and react to things because of things that have happened to us. Now, the, there's a little extra layer in Scientology of it could have happened in a past life, right? right. That's a belief system. Right, yeah. As far as just like the sort of base idea of I had something happen to me, you know, I, I burnt my hand and it was raining. And now every time it rains, I feel like my hand hurts, like these ideas or like digging into, um, let's say a family member who was abusive to us and then finding out why we might act a certain way in relationships. Like those are all things that we would be talking about in addressing and auditing in Scientology counseling. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it is uh, threatening if there's something else out there that might have a better result or a different result or a result, you know? A result, right. I mean, it's competition for business, you know, which is when you look at it, at it's very sort of, you know, basic levels, competition for business. But also I think 
you know, not that I have factual evidence. I wasn't there when it happened and I haven't read the original documents, but you know, there's been talk about how L. Ron Hubbard was uh, diagnosed with different psychiatric disorders. So, so in order for that to not hold any water, then if you can discredit the source of the information, then you discredit the information. It's no longer valid. And there's part of me that really believes that. And I, on, a lot of people leave Scientology or probably leave any cult or, or organization that's high demand religion type, you know, want to learn, want to find out. I, I've been the opposite. I'm not the one who's looking online and getting in chat groups and looking at all of the information out there. I kind of just want to put it behind me. And I haven't been the one who's, you know, I've seen a couple TV shows that my friends went on or whatever, but I'm not, I'm not as like, um, I'm not a wealth of information when it comes to what maybe other truths are out there, or other stuff about how Ron Hubbard is out there. Like that's not, and that's not what I, right. Not, it's not what I'm passionate about when it comes mm-hmm. to them leaving this particular organization. It's not what I care to talk about. And, um, but I'll tell you that just from my own sort of, I think when you leave something like this you start wondering like you start wondering when did my what got my parents involved and what what would their mindset have been and why would they you know have gotten into uh, a cult and why would they raise their children in a cult and how could they believe it so wholeheartedly that you know like in my father's case in the last nine months of his life he didn't he wouldn't talk to me and um like how could you be so deep in something that you would allow it to control your life to, to that level. And, um, yeah. and I think I've got my sort of answers for my parents to some degree. I mean, I think I understand my parents to some degree because I know them very well and I understand their psychological sort of who they are, but I'll run Hubbard, you know, and I start thinking about him and just bits and pieces I've gathered. I get, I, I really kind of think he was a very sick person. I think he had stuff going on in his head that he wanted to try to fix. Like, I don't, I, I, I kind of don't think that he was like a very calculated, maybe he was, I don't know. I just don't think he was like extremely calculated. I really think he thought like, I'm going to figure this thing out. Um, Hmm. I don't think, and, and I think he was kind of mad, you know, like you, you look at some of the later, um, you know, like the OT data that you can find out there, or that's been, you know, talked about at this point on various, like, uh, going clear and, and it's, you know, the, the alien stuff and this kind of like crazy, like to me, psychobabble, you know, I feel like he was a little psychotic and he wanted to try to like figure out what was going on in here. And he, he was just a storyteller and kind of a crazy guy. And he came up with these ideas and in some, and he wasn't uh, unintelligent, you know, I mean, he's a very smart, he's a good writer. Right. I mean, how could you ever get this many people to follow you by being, if you were like an idiot, he was smart. And um, yeah, yeah. I mean, but you bring up a really good point. I mean, a couple good points already, you know, that I just want to come back to one is you don't have to be an expert on what you are involved in. <laughs> like, no. You know, it is sometimes <laughs> the expectation, like, teach me about this. And, you know, and like you somehow can just at a party, teach a class about the whole history of it, <laughs> like you'd want to anyway. But, right. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think you can focus on what it is that, 
that helps you the most, that helps you kind of heal from the experience, understand the experience, and you don't have you don't have to be an expert. For other people, it's healing. For other people, they want to know the data, et cetera, et cetera. The other thing that that has been interesting about you know studying people like L. Ron Hubbard is that I think he had these different selves. I think he had a private persona and a public persona because yeah. of the people who who knew him kind of behind the scenes. He was a, sometimes a really kind of different guy behind the scenes, but also just looking at him, just the visuals as he got older, he just looked kind of more disheveled and more crazy. There's one video. I can't remember what he's talking about, but his hair is really wild. Yes. Yes. And he looks and he's, he's, I, it doesn't look, it's a very different version than the one we were presented. You know, like you, you're presented a very a very like ascot and you know buttoned up looking guy with very clean cut hair and um it's when i saw this video gosh i wish i could even recall what he was talking about i think it was on the ship though or some sort of interview with him it was an interview with him yes it was Um, it was and you could kind of see a lot of people actually don't remember at the time what he talked about because they were so taken by by what he looked like right and how he was sort of carrying himself. And you just got a feeling like he was losing um, it. Yeah, exactly. He yeah. was losing it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so anyway, as far as like the, the mental health thing goes, I mean, you asked when you first started the podcast, you would ask me like, hey, maybe you would want to come on. And I was like, oh, I, you know, I, uh, I don't think I'm ready to, to, to do that. Like I've, I've posted a few things on my Facebook page and that's kind of like about as far as I feel comfortable, you know, I just don't want to, it's hard. It's really hard in this, even, even though I'm, I'm already at the level of shunned, you're going to pretty much get, I, I, you know, um, it's still hard. It's like, I don't want to hurt people. Yeah. Uh, Oh, it's so interesting. Right, because when you contacted me and you said, you know, I think I, I think I'm feeling ready to, to do this. You know, yes, on the one hand, yeah, uh, and then on the other hand, if you're a kind person, sensitive person, you're going to be thinking about everyone else while you're talking. And so, can you explain to the people listening what you mean by hurting people just by coming on here? Yeah, well, because in Scientology when you are declared a suppressive person, you know, your friends and family that are in the group are made to choose between the group and you. And most of them, unfortunately, tend to choose the group. I mean, there are a handful of friends that I had that that um, are amazing friends and didn't go that route. Um, and there are also a handful of friends that were already sort of out or or declared themselves so excommunicated themselves and that's been a wonderful community for me but I've lost like all of my bosom buddy friends or the great deal of them that I grew up with and a lot of my family and um or immediate family my my um extended family gratefully is not in Scientology and that's one thing that really differentiates us. I feel like, I mean, I, I've made friends with um, ex-Mormons, ex-Jehovah's Witnesses, a few people from the Children of God cult, some people from Christian cults, and there's a lot of common threads in that um, it's really just, there's a lot of healing and finding people who have a similar story and realizing like, okay, 
although I'm an individual with my own story and I'm unique, this, this happens to a lot of people. Like we're not alone in our, in our suffering. We're not alone in our trauma. There's other people who have experienced similar trauma and are going through similar loss and grief and um, excommunication and shunning and all that happens a lot of, but the Mormons is so interesting because we have such a similar, I mean, there's just a lot of parallels between Mormonism and Scientology from my little bits that I've gathered talking to some ex-Mormons. And one of the things that really struck me is how far back it goes in their family. Even though they're a young religion, their whole family tends to be involved. I mean, your mother, your grandmother, all your aunts and uncles, you know. And so I almost feel fortunate in a way, you know, part of me goes like, well, thank God, at least, you know, my family, my mother, you know, my mother's family that are, um, that have never, you know, they they probably thought that this was a wacky thing to begin with, you know, or just grateful to have me sort of to have, be able to have a real conversation with me. And, and um, you know, on my father's side as well, I, I never really knew them growing up and they, we were kind of isolated to some degree from both of our families, but especially from my dad's family. Um, so just to get to, to know them in the, in the sort of over the last, I don't know, number of years, maybe decade, I've gotten to know my cousins on that side and forged a relationship with them. And so that's kind of nice. And I, I feel sorry for those people who are like so entrenched. I mean, Orthodox, the Mormons, you know, where it's like, man, how do you, I feel like I don't have a big support system. I can't even imagine the lack of support. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's extremely difficult when you are uh, feeling so isolated. Um, It's hard to then get that kind of emotional support. It's hard to feel like you have backup um, that you have a safe place to land. And also when you have other people around you, uh, it becomes sort of a mirror to your experience. You get a frame of reference, right? You can kind of check it out. Like, is this normal? Or, you know, is it like oh, yeah. expected that I should be feeling X, Y, and Z? You know, it's nice to have people to yeah. talk to you about that. And also people who, if they haven't been in, you get the experience that they're going to accept you and love you unconditionally, which is a very healing thing that it doesn't matter what you believe, like, you know, and they, right. they're just going to love you. Um, and I, I hope that thing is not something that's ever going to be an issue for them. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Which is a real departure from what happens in Scientology. And yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm, you know, I know that we're, you said that you really wanted to be able to talk about therapy and pursuing therapy. I'm wondering also if you wanted to talk a little bit about your history just so people kind of understand sure the yeah. things that you've been pursuing help with in therapy well my biggest sort of thing here uh for wanting to talk to you is definitely about the mental health and you know i have a little brother who has mental health issues and is not diagnosed and is not treated and so um it's something that's constantly on my mind and I'm getting a little emotional just thinking about it. Um, sorry. No, no, that's really hard. I'm sure you feel very protective of him. It's hard because there's, it's, I feel helpless. Um, 
because I can't protect him. And I, and I feel like a big part of that has to do with the way his mind is warped um, from, you know, since he was uh, born. So um, tough. And, and that, and then a lot, and, and it, as well, I have lost a lot of friends, um, some close friends and some acquaintances to suicide as well in Scientology, that were, grew up in Scientology or were in Scientology at the time. And to me, uh, it's like an, epi it's an epidemic, you know, I feel like we have an epidemic of people who are committing suicide. And, um, I say we, like I'm still a part of the group, but um, that the people that I grew up with, that children that I grew up with are, are committing suicide um, at such an alarmingly high rate is um, something that I just don't think is like talked, <laughs> talked about, not within the community of Scientology, which it has to be on people's minds because you can't ignore it. Um, not within that that community and not and I don't really feel like outside of that community although there's been a bit of it you know like Leah did a couple shows or you know talked a bit about people who've committed suicide um but I just don't think that uh most people are are really aware of how many the number is just so astronomical to me and I it didn't even really occur to me until my my husband and I we were talking um, one day, it's gotta be a couple years ago at this point, and I had lost another friend. I had heard about a young man named Glenn Eltringham who I hadn't known him as an adult, but as a child, I grew up with him. And he was like best friends with my older brother and his little brother was best friends with my other little brother. So we knew them very, their family very well. Um, mom and, dad and um anyhow you know I heard that he had committed suicide a couple years ago at this point I think I can't I can't re you know, put, pinpoint the date but um and this was before the whole thing had gone down where I hadn't been kicked out of the church yet and I think I was talking to my mom about it and he said don't you think it's bizarre like here's another person and then and I had sat down and counted 10 people you know, and here I am at that time, maybe in my early thirties. And I'm like, I know 10 people I grew up with who committed suicide. How many people do you know? Like from your, from your classrooms, from, you know, like the, when you were a kid and your sisters and you were all in school, you're a few years apart, just like me and my brothers, how many of your childhood friends have you heard of? And, you know, she kind of shrugged that off, but my husband was with us. And I said, what about you, Todd? Like, what about you? you have, you know, two sisters and a brother, there's four of you. What about, any, you know, do you know, how many people do you, have you heard of that you guys grew up with in, 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 in elementary school, middle school, high school, college, like in your class, your sister's class? He said, I think there was one, I think I remember hearing about one person who committed suicide. I think it was in his sister's like class. And I said, I think that's normal. I think that's a normal amount, like one or two people around you. It's a sad, tragic thing and it still sucks. But when you're losing 10, 11, 12 people in your life that you've known and, and they're in this thing that's supposed to have the answers, that's supposed to be able to 
That's the modern science of mental health that's supposed to be able to help them. That's a self-help kind of a, a religion. Why isn't it helping? And, and then on top of that, there's the added, the depression isn't like really real to us because we're told like, you know, psychiatry and psychology is a, is a, is a no-no, is a bad thing. These are evil people. They're trying to drug the world. Like, I think of A Brave New World, if you know that book, where all the, everyone's on soma pills, right? Um, And I'm I'm sure L. Ron Hubbard read the book because it was written in the 20s, you know? It's a very old science fiction-y book about this utopian society and, um, and everyone's on drugs and they're all in classes and whatever. That's the thought I had about like what psychiatry was like, just drug people up so they don't know what's happening. And so they're not aware. Um, and, and if you sort of plant that seed in young people and then they do experience extreme depression, debilitating depression, or they do experience you know, extreme anxiety, or they have schizophrenia, or they're bipolar, or they're hearing voices, and they won't seek help. It's like, it's just so harmful. Like, it's just so harmful. And it bothers me. And it hurts me to, to see so many people gone, you know, or, or hurting, either gone or hurting and not getting help. Right. So I know from your, your personal connection with your brother, and then with all these friends, yes, it is not typical to have the numbers be so high. Um, in fact, I just have one person I know that I grew up with who committed suicide and she had gotten into an end times kind of cult really? and they committed suicide. I mean, yes. you know, yes. but sort of in the, in my general sphere, no, I, I don't think that I heard about that happening. And when you also talk about how you don't get the help that you need, and you're kind of, I mean, for lack of a better term, sort of drugged to feel like drugs are evil. That brainwashed, brainwashed right. So fear-based kind of um, manipulated that you, you feel like anyone who's going to be trying to help you in a way that's other than the Scientology way is trying to harm you and they're up to something. It just is, it's a, I think it's a very purposeful redirection. Uh, and deflection away from really the people who are harming you and the ones who are keeping you from getting relief and getting what you need. And instead, I think things are really seen as weaknesses as opposed to strengths. I think it takes a lot of strength to pursue kind of real counseling and, and, and taking medication and saying, okay, I think I need this. Uh, And it's not a weakness. And there's even a further like, like I told you, walking into a therapist's office was hard for me, even mm-hmm. after I've already been out. I'm mm-hmm. out. My husband and I had a thing where like we were going through something in our marriage. He wasn't really interested in therapy. I decided at that time to seek therapy for myself, you know? And um, this is like nine, 10 years ago at this point, maybe nine years ago. I can't, I don't recall exactly, but, and, um, and I do remember were feeling that anxiety and like fear and panic but there was someone I won't say the name but there was a friend who came to one of your things with me and 
on the way, this person literally was having a panic attack. They'd never done therapy. And, and I remember like explaining, you don't have to stay like, this isn't like an auditing session where you're locked in the room and you can't leave because in Scientology, that is how it works. You, you don't get up and leave the room until you're smiling. Otherwise they put what they call a red flag on your folder um, and, they, and you have to come back the next day, but like immediately get back into session. So you're in a happy zone, you know, so you're in a happy place. And so, and I don't know if it was that or just, just that fear that sort of, I mean, unfounded fear <laughs> and anxiety. Like there are a lot of people I know who have pretty heavy anxiety, who are untreated, who either treat it by medicating themselves with alcohol or marijuana, or they, they're too afraid to, to touch um, medication for it, like, like an actual medication that's specific for the problem you have. A friend and I were talking about like how this person has really high anxiety and has no problem like smoking pot or like there's certain things, but this person won't take anxiety medication, like would never consider taking medication for anxiety um, or even like things like over-the-counter drugs bother them um, because of sort of conditioning. It's just, it's bizarre thinking that's really hard to shed. Uh, or another friend who street drugs, like they'll do street drugs, you know, uh, mushrooms, whatever, like party drugs, you know, like somehow that's okay. But if anyone prescribed them Prozac or Ritalin or, or you know, Adderall or God forbid, like, uh, medication of any sort right that would be like and I can't I mean I get it because no one has ever tried prescribing me that but I feel like I'd be the same way now I'm a I'm sober entirely no alcohol no drugs no pot no mushrooms no nothing <laughs> so I would be very careful to take any type of medication even for pain like I I've had pain medications and I um like either going to take one and then just see and then give it doled out to me by my husband kind of thing but I don't know that I would even take the pill um you know if it was prescribed to me yeah I think I think just the anxiety leading up to it would be so difficult that it might not be worth it although sometimes then when you do take the medication and you feel some relief then you say, oh, actually, this is a viable option for me. Yeah. It was like in the case of my brother, what I kept, I started like when I first went into therapy. So I went into therapy over marital stuff. And then I just was sort of like, I want to find myself. I I left Scientology in my twenties, my mid twenties. Like that was when I actually backed away from the the church and said, I don't, this isn't, this is my parents thing. It's not my thing. And I don't want to do it. I want to go back to school. Like, I, I want to spend my time and my money in a, in a classroom, you know, if I'm going to be studying. And it's a lot of time and money that you're, you know, putting into the studies. So I did that. I left and I went back to school and, and I did start trying to find myself. This is the time I got sober, you know, I was 26, 27 years old. And I was having that like soul searching time in my life. I think that a lot of young people probably have in college, but another conversation but most Scientologists don't go to college yes true um or even finish high school unfortunately a lot um so I 
at that time, um, you know, decided, okay, I'm going to go into therapy. I'm going to talk about the stuff going on with my, with my marriage. And I'm also going to talk about just life. You know, my little brother was living here with me at the time. And I found out that there was stuff going on, um, in his life that I just didn't know about and didn't understand. Uh, um, and without sort of revealing too much about his person, personal experiences, I'll just say that it was, I was, it was hard for me. Like there were times that he had been arrested or, or been homeless. And, um, as a big sister, you know, who like, Mm -hmm. I, I do have, you know, I think more of the means to help him financially. And I ended up having to have, uh, asking him to come stay here or letting him come stay with me. But I, I found out really quickly that there was, that he was sort of like a different version of himself than the one I knew. And he had gone into the Sea Org, um, you know, Scientology's clergy. He had joined the Sea Org and dedicated his life to that for, he went in for six years, I think, or yeah, I think six years from age 16 to, to 22, if I'm remembering properly. And, um, and he came out a different person. And I know schizophrenia happens around that age, like in the late teens and early twenties for, for boys or men. But I found that out through my therapist because at the time I didn't know what was going on. I was like having some bizarre instances with him and just weird stuff like uh, him showering a, mil- a bunch like all the time or and wearing headphones everywhere where like I couldn't have a conversation he didn't want to have a conversation and I've I don't know if he's hearing voices and trying to drown them out um with the headphones but he's it's it's a it's a constant with him um or was at that time I haven't seen him in a, in a while and then this bizarre eating patterns of like only eating rice and beans which is definitely something that was bred into him when he was in the Sea Org. Um, because when you're not doing well, when your organization that you're uh, posted in is not doing well in the Sea Org, they put you on rice and beans. And I had it happen when I was in the Sea Org when I was a kid. And so I feel like he's sort of stuck in something, like there's something he's stuck mentally in that I um, that okay. he can't pull himself out of. Right. And so I felt as start telling my therapist bits and pieces and she would ask me some questions and she finally said she said I can't diagnose your brother like I can't be you know but you know from a lot of what you're telling me it it sounds like he might be schizophrenic so I started going online and looking up like about schizophrenia and I think I would say 95% sure that he's schizophrenic from what I read and what I experienced with him. And so I told my mom, you know, I I had to eventually ask him to leave here after about six months because it was so uncomfortable and scary to me, to be honest, especially when I started reading about schizophrenia, um, to have him here with me. And so he went to my mom's, which then has led to me feeling a lot of fear about my mom. Fear about your mom in what way? Just like I have fear that he's going to hurt her. Yeah. I have fear that he's either going to hurt himself or he's going to hurt her. Um, but there's a, there are a number of things that have happened that make me think that he hears voices or he wants to, has the urge to hurt his family. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, I've kind of gotten to a place with it where I've, I can, you can only say so much to people 
you can only, <laughs> you know, I can't, he's a grown adult who um, doesn't want to seek help. And so I wish he would, I wish he would. I wish he was on medication. I think it would be a totally different life for him. But, and I also wish that he was collecting disabilities. He can't work, he can't have a job, he can't have relationships. And he's totally broke, he has no money but he wouldn't go collect disability because he'd have to, he'd have to see a doctor. He'd have to get a psychiatric evaluation. Right. It's so, it's so very sad also now because even more so, not that I, not that I'm trying to make you feel even more more sad about the story, really, it's not my intention, but medications now are not what they were. I think when, you know, L. Ron Hubbard was so afraid of all those medications. I mean, they, they really were, different for things like this and um, much stronger and oftentimes much more debilitating um, and would make people a little more zombie-like. But there are medications now that I think your brother would get a lot of relief from and it would quiet his mind. I mean, I think that or more than it is now. I think it sounds like what he's doing by putting headphones on, et cetera, et cetera, is that he is trying to manage all the kind of sensory input. And also by taking so many showers, he's trying to, it's like self-medicating with all the fears that he might have. Um, And I think that there is something very isolating about that life because you're so in your head. He's reclusive. Like he doesn't have friends and I mean he started playing music which I think has been helpful to him and and um he's he draws and writes and you know he's a creative guy um he's always been very creative we all our whole family you know music and writing and it just sort of runs in our in our blood but um but yeah I feel like he is alone and it's really hard it's hard as his sister And like, he was the baby, you know, I'm older than him and and he was the baby. He was like, I would help him brush his teeth. And, you know, he's my little baby. I feel like he was, I got to help raise him. Um, And then just see like, yeah, and just, just the fact that no one really acknowledges. I mean, one of my brothers, you know, acknowledges that it's frustrating, but pretty much the rest of the family is kind of uh, apathetic about it. I think like everyone, no one's saying there's nothing wrong because there is. Right. You can't deny it. Right. I mean, there, there most certainly is. And I'm sorry that he's dealing with that. And also that he's not able to get not only the help that he's needing, but also sometimes when you, go into a program that can help you, you meet other people who right. are dealing with similar things. Just like leaving these uh, cults and, and connecting with. Exactly. Similar. Exactly. So you don't feel so alone. Um, and I'm just wondering if there are other people who might be able to help him out or reach out to him. Cause it's very hard when you feel like it's just on your shoulders. Um, it, there are a lot of uh, siblings who I've worked with who have left groups feeling very guilty uh, that they left without their siblings or 
that they couldn't protect their siblings while they were in it together. And there's a lot of residual guilt about that. It's a pretty common feeling. I feel very grateful that I have a program um, of recovery because A, there's a lot of trauma in recovery. You get to hear all sorts of different families, uh, dysfunction. <laughs> um, and, uh, but, but there's also A, there's a, there B, there's a program. There's a program. There's steps I can use. There's tools I get. And then there's sounding boards. And I had one of my friends in recovery told me, when I was going, when I first, there's some stuff's going on right now with, with my, with my brother and, um, that I really can't fix or change. And I, and so I've been in like, you know, my head's just ro roaming around and around and around and, I, and I'm freaking out and this and that. And my friend said, she can be very blunt. <laughs> she goes, why do you think it's your job to save them? That's what she told me. Why do you think it's your job to save them? Like. I don't, I don't know, you know, I, and she's like, you think you saw the light and they need to see the light and, and you're the only one who can like fix it for them and you've got to get them to see the light. And she said, well, I hate to break it to you, but they don't want to buy what you're selling. I, and I said, I kind of was annoyed and angry. And then the next day I texted and I said, you know, you're right. Like I thought about it a while. I said, you're right. You're right. It's not my job. And a big part of my program is, you know, to pray and meditate. And like um, my prayers, I, I kind of think of them as manifestations of what I would, of what I would like my head or my life or my relationships to look like. And so I changed my prayer that day. And I said, you know, I basically asked to let go of my opinions, you know, about what my role is supposed to be in their lives, what my what they're supposed to do like just let go of my opinions about their lives period and then what my role is supposed to be and just if the door is open for me to be of service that I would have you know that I would take that opportunity that's it like what can I do I can't be responsible it's hard enough to be responsible for my life my bills my mortgages my you know, my marriage, my friendships, my, my job, my clients, like I've got enough going on to, t to try to take on, you know, the lives of people who don't even want my help. It's kind of a bizarre, it's hard to detach yourself from your family, you know, in that way, but it's also freeing to some degree. It's like, well, you know, what, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Am I going to, you know, charge in there and fix everything? I, I don't think so. No, you're not necessarily going to do that. You're not going to charge in there, uh, first of all. And then even if you did, that wouldn't be fixing everything. It might not be received well. But I, I do agree with your friend. And I think also these situations are unique because it's not just someone of their own volition saying, I'm not interested. They're in a system that's preventing them from being able to be interested. So there's this other thing in between the two of you. And it's yeah. a form of abuse, you know, it's a form of abuse. It's mental abuse. It's emotional abuse. Like mm -hmm. it's abuse that I don't think we acknowledge because we don't even recognize that it's part of the abuse from the system. You know, what was you were saying earlier about, um, you know, he could meet people that would have similar experiences, right? And then you start, oh, 
I had an experience recently where a friend um, who uh, is grew up in Scientology and is filing a lawsuit. And there was like a lawyer meeting and I went to this thing and we're hearing about abuse from different types of cases that this lawyer has had. And most of them have nothing to do with Scientology. I don't know if anything, any of them had anything to do with Scientology. But it would be like a, a case where a coach ab- sexually abused their oh, you know, yeah. Yeah. athletes or uh, in, in the case of um, uh, in another church where the priests were abusing um, children or youth or whatever. And I, I found it bizarre listening to a lot of the people who were there talking about their experiences and how they really didn't have abuse. Um, and I thought, and I even challenged somebody at one point and said, you don't think you have abuse? I mean, I know the entire story of your childhood and your life. Like I, I find that really hard, really hard to believe. And then we started talking about it and it's like, there's abuse on so many levels that it's hard. The neglect is abuse, you know, but this sort of like mental conditioning is abusive. It's so abusive. The idea that you're responsible for everybody and you're a child, you know, like these, these uh, ideas that are planted in our heads as children where you don't ever get to be the victim. Um, And in fact, there are certain words like victim that are, that are, you know, bad words in Scientology. Their victim is like, we would say that about somebody with contempt. Mm -hmm. Um, He's playing the victim, you know, Um, that's a, being the victim is such a bad thing that no one wants to be the victim. And it wasn't until years after leaving that I realized, I mean, in cases in my own life where, I had a rape situation at 15, for instance, this wasn't having to do with Scientology, but I was raped when I was younger Mm. and that came up in therapy and with my first therapist. Yeah. I'll bet it did. And she told me that's rape. And I said, well, you know, she's like, no, that's rape. You know, that's what happened. And I said, well, you know, and I was drinking and I shouldn't have been. And I asked him to buy me this alcohol. And she's like, you're 15 years old. He was a grown man. Uh, and that was non-consensual sex. That's not, that's not okay, you know? And that's what it is. And I, and I still like that idea of being a victim. And I didn't re- recognize it at that moment until a little later where it's like, I don't want to be a victim. Instead of saying it's okay, like I was a victim of, I was a victim of the church. I was a victim of my brainwashing. I was a victim of rape. Like it's okay to have been a victim. And it actually... It, it, it's relieving to, to recognize that I'm not responsible because the church tells you you're responsible for everything. I'm responsible, full responsibility is having, is being responsible for someone I've never met on a highway I've never driven and all this like stuff that we learn as a, a, you know, in our youth. And so we kind of believe that we pulled in things. Like I pulled that in, I attracted it to me by somehow, you know, I was not ethical. I was drinking and I was underage. I asked someone to do something that was illegal for me, like these things that, oh, instead right. of, 
wow, you're a 15 year old kid. Like, yeah, you do the smartest things and you're experiencing life for the, you know, this is your first time with alcohol, you know, and yeah, not a smart yeah. move, not okay for a guy to take advantage of it or take advantage of you or use you for sex. Like that's not okay. Right. It's never okay. And when you are the one who is told that you've pulled it in or because of something you did, you, you then don't have a clear sense about who is in the wrong. And also that something happened to you that was wrong and that someone else is to blame. I mean, if, if you were to walk into a room and say, you know, abuse me, um, even like and ask for it, and then someone did it. It would still be wrong of them to still do wrong. it. So right? wrong. And you're still the victim. You're still the victim. And I think you know there are so many groups that have this kind of diagnosis, or they, they see it as something wrong with you if you're the victim. There are these large group awareness trainings where it it, it used to be. I don't know if they still do it in one of them where. You're told to tell all of the things that happened to you when you were young and any abuse that you dealt with or if you had been, well, abused really in any way. And then you would be made to sit in what was called the victim's row, which was um, where everyone then would have to sit together and they would be shamed because it was somehow this weakness. And so, you know, Scientology, unfortunately, did not invent that horrible idea right. um but i think I mean, we're part... being victim shamed i think in so many ways in our lives and women yes in general um you know this idea that you shouldn't wear a you know a short whatever like i shouldn't wear this because someone's gonna rape me like right exactly <laughs> no one will be able to control themselves around your breasts even though half of the population have them right right exactly <laughs> but, i mean it's true, right? There's some the people like the women who have to cover everything, right? right. Exactly. Um, but you should be able to walk down the street naked, unless if it's illegal <laughs> where you where but you're living. Reality, like we are, God made us or whatever you believe we yeah. came from and that we're in. This isn't like a shameful form. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> just, exactly. Uh, female, male, female form. Exactly right, and so. The other thing that happens, though, when you are blamed, when it, the, the blame is redirected onto you, then people who are raised in those environments or come into those environments oftentimes don't know how to define the words. Just like you're saying, they don't know that that happened to them Yeah. because they don't know how to define it. And or it's been what redefined it's, for them. That word has been redefined. It's like victim in Scientology being a negative, the, there were other words that didn't strike me till later, um, open-minded. Oh, what does that mean in Scientology? It, it's, it's a, well, it means being open-minded, but it's a negative. It's a negative thing. It's like, don't be open-minded. Don't, and the other word is reasonable. Those are two very, um, they're negative terms. Mm-hmm. They're negative terms. Um, and reasonableness um and open-mindedness is like allowing this gets you into sort of a, a tunnel of other Scientology stuff but um 
there's we're not supposed to have other practices. That's enough. That's something we're taught. No other practices. So an other practice would be seeking therapy. Some people consider like yoga other practices. I've had people tell me, well, you can't, you know, do yoga. It's like, what do you mean? Like the meditation, you're not supposed to meditate. Meditation has probably been like the one best thing I ever learned since Scientology. Even just a pause, just a pause and like, right. you know, just sit in something for a minute instead of reacting immediately. But yeah, you're not supposed to be open-minded and you're not supposed to be reasonable and, and, and you're not supposed to be a victim. And that's just... I mean, there's, it's just, it's just so a part of who you are. I don't even, I can't even tell you why it's just a part of who you are. You know it as from a child. Right, exactly. So it, whenever things are seen as pejorative, right, I think about why, and I think about how it, it it would negatively affect um, the group in some way, the overall control. So if you then are um, kind of never really the victim that you brought it in, then that gives the group around you and the people in it kind of carte blanche to just do whatever to you. Oh, which is probably why there's so many traumas we're hearing about on, on Leah's show, for instance, or just mm-hmm. out about sexual abuses, particularly underage sexual abuses that have happened within the church. Yeah, um, and, right. And then also, I think the idea of being reasonable, I mean, you know, having your critical thinking is associated with being reasonable. Uh, and that doesn't work. Was a thing until I went to college in my mid to late 20s. And I learned literally is one of the objectives in my first English class, critical thinking. Mm. And I learned, and I've and I've had conversations with other people who are leaving Scientology or wanting to leave Scientology, where I say, you know, you have to look at both sides of the coin, and we're taught to only look at source, source being materials that were written by L. Ron Hubbard. We're taught to always go back to source, uh, and it never occurred to me. And it never occurred to me because I was raised in it. If I had come from a different background and come in, it would have been a different experience. I would have some other, I could, re, I could, I could look back and say, oh, I've got another frame of reference, right? But when this is your only frame of reference, you don't know, you know, you only know what you know. You mm-hmm. only know what you know. And so for me, it was like, it was my, it was, uh, it was eye-opening. It was um, alter, life-altering to, to have an idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are we reading about? I can't remember what I wrote my paper on now, but we were reading both The Jungle. Oh, wow. And uh, uh, Fast Food Nation at the same time. But it was like coming up with this idea, this thesis for my paper, and then challenging my own idea. Uh-huh. So you have to, you learn to show two sides of the story like here's what the you know the the pro argument is here's what the con argument is and here's like how I feel about it and why I feel that way it just it sounds so basic but I never had that experience of of questioning the argument right it was always 
this is the argument and this is all true. And if you don't believe it, you're missing something somewhere and you've got to figure out where the word is that you didn't get it or the concept you didn't understand and go back and figure it out so that you understand it. It never was maybe there's another answer. And so the idea coming to the coming to realize that I could change my mind about what I thought what I thought I thought about something, what I thought my belief was about something, what I thought the answer was, you know, and then having something change, like, well, that's a new revelation and that's different information. And this person really put it well, and maybe I should go down that little rabbit hole and see what's over there. It just never occurred to me as a child, like, right, ever. And it wouldn't to anyone that grew up in Scientology. You could ask 100% of the people who grew up the way I did, and they would have told you the same thing. Maybe there was that one really like, you know, out of the box thinker. (laughs) Yeah, we just, it wasn't a thing you did. And when you went to Scientology schools, it wasn't something you were taught. And I mean, I think that stems from the leadership of leadership. It has the personality where they cannot handle being questioned or disagreed with. So they're going to build that into the system that you just can't ever do that. And, and also that if the teachings are seen as perfect, if it's, you know, what we call in our field, sort of the sacred science, that there's this perfection around it, then it wouldn't ever occur to you to, to question it. The other part is the socialized piece, which is the people who do question, well, you see what happens to them, you know, and no one wants that to happen. So you don't fear. want that. Right, exactly. So there's behavior modification in there where you say, okay, I don't want to be on the hot seat. I don't want to be called something. I don't want to be punished. That group. I want to be in the good graces. Right, exactly. It's also very freeing to know that unless you're dealing with a mathematical equation or scientific formula, there really um, there could be more than well, one I- right answer when you're dealing with mathematics there may not be one right or there may only be one right answer but there's a lot of ways to get there Uh uh-huh exactly there's routes you can take and even mathematicians are open-minded they know that something new can happen and science i mean science is such a great field because they're consistently saying oh crap this thing we thought was true isn't true because we something new happened and now we've got to throw this other idea away that doesn't happen in religion, period. Not in cults and not in any religion. You're not going to find any religion saying the whole heaven hell thing, <laughs> we were wrong, you know. This is not how it works. It's, yeah. and, and with Scientology, any Scientologist that's in, involved in Scientology would argue this conversation and say, if it isn't true for you, it isn't true. That's what L. Ron Hubbard says. If it isn't true for you, it isn't true. You don't have to believe everything. And on the surface, that sounds great. But in reality, when you start questioning the the doctrine of Scientology and the ideologies of Scientology and the leadership of Scientology, the management of Scientology, you can't be critical of Scientology. And that's written in plain text. You can't be critical of Scientology. If you're critical of it, whether or not it's true for you (laughs) or it isn't, and if you speak critically about it, then you get put in the criminal category now you're put in the suppressive person category now you're a threat to the organization and you're and you're ousted you know yeah 
You can't speak critically. It was wonderful to speak to April and to start our conversation. So, so powerful. I look forward to having you hear the rest of it next week. It's so interesting to hear how children in cultic groups are made to feel responsible for everything and everyone, and it really robs them of their childhood, especially when you find that if you are mistreated or neglected or are not supposed to be upset about it, it's hard to ever really be certain about what happened to you, especially if the explanation given is that you did something wrong and somehow drew that negative action towards you and are responsible for it happening. You're also not supposed to be upset because then that's you being a victim. So you're basically backed into a corner. It's a catch-22, and that is the way most things are in groups like these. This happens all the time in situations like this where people are trapped and there's no way out emotionally, where you're kept from being able to sleep throughout the night and then you're berated for being tired the next day or falling asleep during an eight-hour lecture by the leader where you are kept from being able to take medicine that you need and then you're told that the reason you keep getting sick is because there's something wrong with you and you need to work harder or pray harder to make yourself stronger and you need to take more courses and do things more often to show your allegiance to the group in order to fend off this illness that you wouldn't be having at all if they just let you take your medicine. And it happens quite often where people are pushed to the edge of their sanity and pushed to the edge of their patience and then are told they're crazy, and then are told that they are being unreasonably emotional, and then they're discounted for both of those things that were created by the group or created by a controlling partner. It is a vicious cycle, and it keeps going and going and going and will keep going and going and going until you find a way to step out of it. And so one of the reasons I think children and also adults are treated this way in groups where if bad things happen to them, that's on them. And if they complain about it, they are being manipulative or negative or acting like victims is so that no one there really needs to take responsibility for what they did wrong. It becomes a limitless playground for the controlling person where they can mistreat you without taking any responsibility for it or even apologizing for it, where you're without any recourse or without anyone kind of normalizing or confirming your experience and saying, yeah, I actually did do this to you and it was wrong of me. I should never have done it. You didn't deserve it. No one does. And I'm very sorry. And I won't do it again. When I say those words to people who have left cults, they start laughing. Yeah, those are words I never heard, they say, and would never have heard. And it also is something you don't hear in controlling or abusive relationships, or within controlling or abusive families. At least, though, that sometimes people do hear it, but it's not said authentically. If it is said to them, as a lot of people have told me, it was said kind of in a manipulative way to get you to trust that person again, and as a way to have you lower your guard so that they could just do it to you all over again. So something else that April talked about were these buzzwords in groups. Sometimes people ask me how they know someone is healthy for them to be with or a group they're involved in is healthy, and I mentioned many factors, including how you can sometimes tell by the buzzwords. 
You can sometimes tell by the words that are seen as bad or the traits that are seen as bad, the things seen as your character flaws or your weaknesses, the behaviors that you exhibit that you're told you have to get rid of because they're getting in your way or they're a sign of the devil or they're your reactive mind or whatever else. There is a clue hidden in noticing what is praised and what is demonized. Usually those traits, as I mentioned in the discussion with April, are those that threaten someone who wants overall control. So people find that when they leave groups like this and they leave relationships like this, the things that they were made to feel ashamed of and be judgmental of in themselves are the very things that the rest of the world applauds them for having and supports them for having and compliments them for having and sometimes wishes they had more of or they could have for themselves. When you're getting involved in an organization or in a relationship and you're told that you're not allowed to be reasonable and that you're not allowed to have your critical thinking and you're not allowed to have your reactive mind, which as I see it is a mind that reacts appropriately to the situation at hand, to something happening to you, good or bad. It often helps you know if something happened to you that shouldn't have happened because you're feeling angry, sad, frustrated, betrayed. It's your gauge your safety net. Your natural and justifiable reactions are not emotions that are getting in your way, as you'll often be told, but there's something getting in the way of the person controlling you. It's their way of saying, I want to do whatever I want to do to you, and I want to tell you whatever I want to tell you, and I want you to believe it, and I want to keep you from being able to protect yourself from me. I want total control, and I want total power, and I also want you to be kept from having a really clear sense that what is happening to you is potentially wrong because I don't want to hear about it. So I'm going to make you doubt your intuition and doubt your reactions to things. And then because you never quite know anymore if you've been actually wronged, you'll be open to having me tell you if what you went through was okay or not, if you were wronged or not. You don't get to decide that. I do. Another buzzword that April talked about was being open-minded. Now, you don't want to be so open-minded that you have no sense of a distinction between what's real and what's not real and who can be trusted and who can't be trusted. But at the same time, being open-minded in the world outside means that you carry yourself in a way where you don't make judgments right away. You don't decide that you like or hate someone just because of who they are or how they look or where they're from. You don't decide that a new idea is bad or wrong just because it's new. There is a lot that is positive about having an open mind, but having an open mind in a group like Scientology means that you're going to be open to possibly disagreeing with it and to having other sources of information besides the information from the leader, that you're not willing to operate in that kind of black and white thinking that the group wants you to operate in, and you don't buy that there's only one right answer. So not being able to be reasonable, not being able to be open-minded, and then not being able to have your reactions to things compounded with having your critical thinking taken away as something that is also getting in your way. Well, these are all clear red flags to me, as I've learned them, about a group that wants to rob you of, well, you. So if somebody tells you that the thoughts you're having are wrong and should be ignored, the reactions you're having are always inaccurate, the inner voice you have, cannot be trusted, the very things that are built into your system to keep your brain safe, to keep your body safe, well, this person telling you this is not trying to empower you and guide you, teach you and protect you. 
This person is telling you what he or she needs, which is devotion and dependence, and what he or she can't handle, which is questioning and dissension. There was a woman who was thinking about leaving a group she was in because a lot had already happened that made her doubt the leader was honest and made her wonder if the group was ever going to do the important work she had been excited about them doing they promised her she was going to be able to do while in the group. And she actually asked me for some feedback, hesitantly, but she did it anyway. I'm happy she did. She wanted to know if the following interchange was right and healthy, as she had gotten so used to it that she no longer really knew if it was quote-unquote normal. She asked her group's leader a few weeks before if she could leave for a weekend to attend her twin sister's wedding. The twin sister was not a member of the group. They remained very close, though, as their parents had died just a few years ago when both girls were just 20. And the leader told her, no, she couldn't go. In response, she expressed sadness about it to him, hoping he would have sensitivity about how much this meant to her and would therefore let her attend, especially after all the years of devotion she had showed to the group and all the sacrifices she had made for it. He told her she was wrong for feeling sad because that was a, quote, childish and a selfish emotion, unquote, and that she was showing herself to be controlled by her emotions and that was a sign of weakness that her allegiance should always be to the group and that her first priority should always be to the group and going to a sister's wedding is, quote, irrelevant and unimportant in comparison to the life-changing work we do here in the group, unquote, and going away would mean she's abandoning the mission in order to just think about herself. Wow, quite a response. After she described all these responses she was given and then asked if I saw it the same way, I said, um, no that she had every right to go to her sister's wedding and enjoy herself, and she shouldn't ha have even been put in a situation where she would have to ask for permission to go. She actually wasn't sure I was right and was still too afraid to go against the leader's wishes and believed he was right, that she was being selfish, and assumed it must mean he was planning something for her to do that weekend that must be instrumental and necessary for the mission. Friday came, and the leader left to go away for the weekend, ironically. Still not ready, though, to see the irony, she waited to be given her instruction for the weekend that must, she thought, have included something vital to do. But when she asked the second-in-command what her tasks were for the weekend, he said he didn't know, and he wasn't given any instructions for her at all. And that was her turning point. The leader didn't need her there at all. And maybe there was no mission at all. And maybe he just didn't want her to have divided loyalties and even think about wanting to spend time with anyone else or focus on anyone else. And it was too late for her to get a plane ticket to attend her sister's wedding. But suddenly, that free weekend gave her time to pack up her bags, walk to the bus station, and make it to her grandparents' house by that Sunday night where she was greeted with open arms. Sometimes you have to see it with your own eyes. Talk to you next week. Indoctrination is available for download on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com indoctrination. Subscribers receive bonus episodes, interviews, and other cool goodies. Send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com.
Thank you for your support. And if you can't become a paid subscriber, I will be so grateful for any and all support that you show. Whether it's subscribing on SoundCloud, YouTube, or Patreon, or giving us a like on our Indoctrination Facebook page, or following our Twitter and Reddit feeds. Thank you for keeping up with us and for keeping the show going. Until next time, Rachel. Rachel.